This evening we're going to consider the love of God towards sinners. The love of God towards sinners. Please turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I'll read from verse 6 through to 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. When we started Romans chapter 5 last week, we saw that when God graciously saves sinners and justifies them, he gives them a peace that this world knows nothing about. It is a peace with God through faith, in his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they rejoice in their heavenly hope. It is a hope that is experienced in tribulations. Tribulations, trials of faith, means the same thing. Also, we saw that the love of God is shed abroad or poured out into believers' hearts by God the Holy Ghost. The Spirit himself abides in and seals hearts as an earnest or deposit of the hope that is in them. That's why as a Christian you have that assurance now, even right now, it doesn't matter what you're going through, you may be going through some very difficult times, but you ought to have, have the hope of glory. You have the Holy Spirit who seals your heart as an earnest or deposit of the promises of God. In the following section, starting at verse 6, the Apostle Paul introduces the evidence or the proof that God really has poured out his love into the hearts of believers. Look again at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Without strength is more often than not translated as sick or weak. The fact is that the natural fallen condition of man is one of being morally weak and unable to obey God. That inability is a sinful inability and it renders each one of us incapable of doing anything at all for ourselves to secure our salvation and our acceptance before God. We can't do anything to um, be accepted before God. When Paul said, for when we were yet without strength, in verse 6, that refers to a continued state of sinful weakness and inability from when? 
from last week, the week before that? How about from conception onwards? A sinful inability and weakness to obey God. We tend to think of sin in numbers, for example, perhaps in terms of having only two inappropriate thoughts today, or maybe only telling one teeny-weeny lie all week. The reality is that sin is continuous. Everything that emanates from sinful man is stained through with sin. For all of that, the amazing thing is that when we were yet unable to obey God, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and after living a life of perfect obedience to God, he sacrificially laid down his life for sinners. We should not think that God just suddenly came up with a great idea to send his only begotten son into the world, some kind of knee-jerk reaction perhaps, God looking down from heaven and seeing, well, things are getting pretty bad down there, I've better do something, I know, I'll send my son. didn't happen that way. Neither did Jesus die, just die on the cross at any old time or at a time that was appointed by his executioners. Far from it. The, the substitutionary death of Jesus was decreed by God before the foundation of the world and it was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures for example in Psalm 22 and verse 16 David who lived about a thousand years before Jesus came into the world was not talking about himself when he said for for dogs have compassed me the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me they pierced my hands and my feet. Clearly, David was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the sacrifice for sin, was clearly depicted in all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices. They all pointed to the cross of Christ. Again, God didn't just suddenly come up with the idea to send his son into the world. In due time, that is in God's perfect time and in accordance with his foreknowledge, his determinate counsel, wicked men took Jesus, they crucified him and they put him to death. Well, have a look at verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, or perhaps, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a very special verse for me, that Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for that. first time I heard that verse years ago, at the first church I went to, it hit me like a sledgehammer. God commending his love towards me, in, in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Amazing verse of scripture. No doubt there were people who provided 
that they had the courage would sacrifice their own life for others. For example, soldiers have been known to um, endanger their lives or even lose their lives for their comrades, perhaps by throwing themselves on top of a grenade. These things happen, don't they? We hear about these things. Or a soldier going forward and taking on uh, a whole platoon of enemy soldiers and he knows that he's not going to get out of it alive. And he does that for the sake of his comrades. Then there are mothers, probably many mothers, who would sacrifice their own lives for the sake of their children. Except, of course, when mothers sacrifice their children at the abortion clinic. But generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that most mothers, providing they had the courage, would sacrifice their lives for their children. And husbands are to love their wives with a sacrificial love. However, the incarnate Son of God, he laid down his life for enemies and haters of the one true God. Very different, isn't it? Note that commendeth in verse 8 is in the present tense that God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. In other words, even though the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross was something that happened 2,000 years ago or thereabouts and it happened about 30 years before, <coughs> before the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle that demonstration of divine love is timeless. That's why it's in the present tense. God commendeth his love towards us. Present tense. As such, we need not imagine that Jesus somehow procured or won God's love for, for us at the cross when he laid down his life. What verse 8 is telling us is that the cross was the clearest manifestation of an everlasting love. The love didn't start at the cross. It's an everlasting love for all who are washed in the blood of Jesus and clothed with his robe of righteousness. Most of us know John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Can you see that in that verse, John 3.16, that the love of God for believers precedes the sending of his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The love was already in place. Dear Christian, when you think upon the love that was man manifested at Calvary, you must surely ask yourself the same questions that Charles Wesley asked himself in the hymn that we just sung a few minutes ago. In the first verse, Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love 
How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You can be absolutely certain that if you are someone who has peace with God through a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently, because you have that peace with God and a genuine saving faith, faith, you joy or you glory in your tribulations, then there is nothing whatsoever that can be done or that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Nothing that will separate you from that love. We've just been considering the depth of God's love in that it is a dying love. As was seen in verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, a dying love. We are now going to consider the height of God's love in that it is a love that will take all who are saved and justified to heaven to be with their living Saviour. So we've seen the depth of God's love in the death of his son. We look at the height of that love that it will take us to heaven to be with Jesus. As such, Paul now shifts from arguing from the greater to the lesser. In the same way that he does in chapter 8, verse 32, where Paul said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The greater comes first, that dying love, that manifestation of God's love at the cross. With that in place, everything else is sure to follow. It's a lesser argument that comes next. Looking at chapter 5 and verse 9 here, much more then takes us from the greater to the lesser. The greater argument to the lesser argument. The greater is that the incarnate Son of God poured out his blood and died on the cross to justify ungodly, unlovely, unlovable, unlovely haters of the one true God. That's a description of people like us. The lesser argument that we shall now consider is that those same people will be spared on the day of judgment. That's a certainty. We've already seen in verse 1 last week that we are justified by faith. But what Paul says in verse 9 being now justified by his blood, that makes it clear that it is the object of our faith that saves, uh, that saves us. Not just our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith saves us. The object of our faith being the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death at Calvary's cross. It is not our faith but the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sins. All means precisely that. Past, present, and of necessity, future sins are forgiven. 
people seem, some people seem to have a problem understanding that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from future sins. But if it didn't, what about that, well, the, I don't know, the, 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 when, you get, when you think something that you shouldn't think before the day's out, in an hour's time, maybe before you go to bed, you'll say something to someone that you regret. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And all meaning that, precisely that. Looking at it negatively, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of the blood of Jesus. What follows in verse 9 is very important to grasp. Paul says, we shall be saved from wrath through him, through Jesus. Note that Paul does not add to those words, if we keep the law. In other words, there are no strings attached. Our salvation is through the finished work of Jesus and nothing else. Full stop. To even imagine or suggest that a sinner for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died will, most, uh, will not most certainly reach heaven is a failure to grasp anything of the extent of God's love. If you're someone who, yeah, you've got that profession of faith, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, but you're still not convinced that you will finally enter into your heavenly rest, then you are missing the point somewhere. The extent of the love of God that was manifest at the cross. These kind of thoughts shouldn't even enter your mind. Look at verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to, to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Dear Christian, the fact that we were enemies of God serves to magnify the great love of God. Enemies of him, the Son of God, laying down his life at the cross, that speaks volumes about the great love of God for those he came to save. When Christ died for us, we were not his friends, we were his enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, where reconciled refers to the removal of differences between those who are at variance with one another. All of that was taken away at the cross. That removal of the differences happened when Jesus pacified God towards sinners at the cross. Last of all, in verse 10, Paul says, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That does not mean that the removal of differences was somehow incomplete at the cross. What is being said is that since the sacrificial death of Jesus has produced peace 
reconciliation for people who are enemies of God, so much so that you, dear Christian, you now call God Father, and he is your Father. That's the reconciliation that you have. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? It can't do. It stands to reason that his resurrection life will most certainly achieve for you an everlasting relationship with God, your Heavenly Father. We'll have a look at verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. When you look at words such as in verse 3 there, and not only so, or verse 9, much more then, or verse 11, and not only so, but... What does that tell you about this passage as a whole? Spurgeon described it as a continual rising, as of one ascending a golden staircase. Look at it again. Of necessity, the bottom of the staircase is, in verse 1, being justified by faith in Jesus. That must come first, being justified by faith in Jesus where Jesus is the object of your faith. As you ascend the golden staircase, the blessings to be received include peace in verse 1, access to God in verse 2, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God also in verse 2, joy in trials of faith or tribulations in verse 3, the love of God poured out in our hearts in verse 5 the indwelling Holy Spirit also in verse 5 deliverance from future wrath of God in verse 9 eternally saved by a living Jesus in verse 10 and finally in verse 11 we rejoice not just in all the aforementioned blessings but most of all we rejoice in God. Before the fall into sin, Adam must have enjoyed a close relationship with God. Alas, sin destroyed that precious fellowship and Adam and his wife Eve, they tried to hide themselves from God. It's ridiculous that anyone could hide from God, but that's precisely what they tried to do And ever since then, man has been trying to hide from God because of sin. They do it in in clever ways, don't they? How do we hide from God or imagine that we are hiding from God? By saying that God doesn't exist. It's like closing your eyes and pretending that no one's there. You can say in your heart, that there is no God as much as you want to. You can look at creation and, and, and say that it all came from a big bang as much as you want to, but you cannot hide from God. The creature cannot hide from the creator. And ever since sin came into the world, Ever since man has been hiding from God, 
there has been no joy in God, only hostility. A person who is truly able to joy in God is someone who has been reconciled to God and restored into the close relationship with God that was lost through Adam. That atonement or reconciliation was achieved by the sacrificial death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that the King James Version rendering of the Greek word katalagi as atonement in verse 11, whilst it isn't wrong, it's probably not the best choice. Most Bible versions have reconciliation instead of atonement in verse 11. Atonement is an Old Testament word referring to the covering of sin. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, there never was true forgiveness through animal sacrifices. Those slaughtered animals, they served as a reminder of sin and they pointed sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come into the world and who is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Reconciliation is a New Testament word that speaks of sin not just being covered but rather being paid for and forever removed by the sacrificial death of Jesus as far as, as, far as the east is from the west removed, gone forever. Finally, one of the hymn writers wrote, the love of God is greater, far, far greater than tongue or, me- or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. He knew what he was talking about. If you are someone who has been reconciled to God by the Lord Jesus Christ, who made peace through the blood of his cross, you can rest assured that the dying and the living love of God for you is great beyond all measure. Therefore, praise God for his everlasting love for you and for the fact that you, having been reconciled to God, are now heaven-bound where your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, now is. Amen.